BSD Talk number 136. It's Thursday, December 20, 2007. Sorry I haven't been pushing out a lot of podcasts recently. My new job has been keeping me very busy, and I just wish I had the time and the energy to do more of these. Uh, After the holidays, I should be able to get back on track a little bit. I did want to let you know uh, what I've been doing. A lot of people have been curious. Uh, Basically, I took a, a new job as the director of technology for a local school district, So I've gone from working on a network of about 100 computers and a couple different sites around the state to working on a network with a couple thousand computers and with many buildings and locations and a a large team of people that work with me. So it's been keeping me very busy just trying to figure out what I'm doing and what the network is about and all that other stuff that you need to know. Another thing that's been keeping me from producing podcasts as quickly as, as I would like is that my recording environment is much different now. Uh, before, I had one setup at, at my previous job, and now I'm uh, on something completely different. I'm uh, sitting in front of a, a new MacBook Pro, and it's taken me a while to figure out what I need to do to get my recording environment all together. Uh, it's still not where I want it to be. I just haven't had the time to devote to that. So, unfortunately, I'm speaking to you using the built-in microphone. Um, I would have used an external USB headset, but right now I am in Texas traveling here to visit family for the holidays. But I did want to um, put out a podcast today for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that December 20, two years ago, was when my first BSD Talk podcast was posted. So it's amazing that it's it's been two years. Back then, uh, let me see, on December 23rd, was when NetBSD 3.0 was released, and uh, just recently NetBSD 4.0 has been released. Also at that time, um, you know, back in 2005, PCBSD wasn't even at version 1.0 yet. So we've come a long way. FreeBSD is getting ready to um, get some release candidates out for 7.0. You know, it's amazing what's changed in these last couple years in the world of BSD. In those two years, I've gone to some BSD conferences and met a lot of amazing people. And, you know, I'm so thankful that the community has been just so nice and so generous with their help and their support. You know, the people who listen to this podcast have been great. The way people have donated their time and their money and hosting and and efforts and everything. It's it's really been wonderful. So I really hope that I can get involved much more uh, in the near future. One of the other reasons that I wanted to publish this podcast today was that a um, an interview was done on my behalf by Michael Dexter, and this is an interview about a book that is coming out, so uh, it's nice to get an interview out there as quickly as possible to help promote the book, and it's about PF, which is available on all the BSDs, so it's uh, an important book. It's nice to have some updated information, so without further ado... Here is the interview that was recorded on my behalf by Michael Dexter. Thank you, Michael, once again for giving me some content. This is Michael Dexter on behalf of Will Backman and BST Talk. And today on BST Talk, we're sitting in the bar Piccolo Martini, talking to Peter Hanstein about his new book, The Book of PF, The No-Nonsense Guide to the Open BSD Firewall. Peter, welcome to BST Talk. Thank you. Well, we're here in Venice. Uh, this is just after OpenCon, uh, which was great. 
I really hope they decide to do another one next year because OpenCon is the one and only conference worldwide which is only OpenBSD. PF has been described as a human-readable firewall and the tool for taking control of your network. Please tell us how you first discovered PF. When I discovered PF, I'd been running the network for the small company I work for, basically throwing together whatever equipment we had and make sure services worked to the extent that they would work on that equipment and those platforms. The platform had been mainly Linux for a while, then I would gradually switching to FreeBSD, but never on the firewall. And the Linux firewall was becoming such a chore that, well, I've been playing with OpenBSD for a while, but never actually implementing it. And then my home firewall broke, and I put PF in place there, and it worked so great. And, well, next week there was magic blue smoke coming out of the firewall at work, so I just put my PF and OpenBSD in place there, and basically never looked back. Is there any feature about PF, strictly as a firewall, that does most to attract, say, IP tables users? Well, my constant problem when I'm trying to explain to IP tables users what PF is about is I show them my configuration and they cannot believe it can be that simple. Like, it's human readable. This is not a shell script. And they just won't believe it until I walk them through every part. Like, this is a machine. I put this operating system on it, usually OpenBSD. It can be the other BSDs. And just stick the pfconf in there, which may be something like five or ten lines and short lines of that. Put it in between the network and the world, and hey, it works. In addition to the readability, I understand that macros and tables will make an administrator's life easier. What can you tell us about those? Well, macros are basically a way of introducing your own readable shorthand. Say you have a long list of services you want to either block or pass. Basically, your general purpose pass rule, you probably want DNS in there, you probably want World Wide Web in there, SSH in there, and a few others. And that's the way you define services in PF. You can use the port numbers if you like, but more likely you want to go with service names. Now, to keep your rule set readable, you probably want to define a list of, say, SSH, Domain, World Wide Web, HTTPS, and a few others. And what you do is you give that a symbolic name like Client Out. And you stick that in your pass rule, so your pass rule becomes something like pass from internal network to any port Client Out. And that's your rule set. Well, what we always get is IPFW users and IP tables users saying, well, you can't change rules on the fly, can you? Well, to some extent you can. What most people are interested in is doing things like allowing or denying specific hosts access. The way you do that with PF is you define a table. A table is a fairly efficient data structure that's designed specifically to contain IP addresses or address ranges. You can have notation like 192.04.03.01 slash 24, and that's a slash 24 network for you. Or you can negate them as well. So you can have the entire network and not the specific IP address. Now that's a structure you can manipulate from the command line. With a combination of anchors and tables, you can have applications interact with your rule set via these two data structures, and the argument you cannot dynamically change your rule set just goes away. Over the last few days, we've been talking about a a theme of saving time and money and catching up on sleep. Let's look at some of the failover features of CARP and HostAD. What can you tell us about those? CARP is short for the Common Address Redundancy Protocol. It was created in partly, at least, in response to efforts for failover protocols having been rammed most of the way through the IETF to well on the way to becoming Internet Standards. 
And then you discover there are three or four patents involved, and nobody's actually paid much attention to what that would mean to, for example, free implementations. So um, the OpenBSD team sat down and wrote their alternative. The way it works is CARP is yet another virtual network interface that has a property that you can have several machines in a group all set up with a CARP interface with the IP address that the rest of the world sees. So a group of CARP machines is divided into one master and several backups. Once the master goes down or you take it down automatically and pretty much transparent to the user, some other machine in that group takes over and your user won't know anything. That means, for example, if your main firewall breaks down at 3 o'clock in the morning, you probably don't need to have it send you an SMS and get you out of bed because the backup and maybe several backups just take over. And the less dramatic circumstances, for example, every six months there's a new OpenBeast release, you can schedule those system upgrades during working hours. So you take down your master firewall, nobody notices because the backup comes up. Once you have the, the master online again, you just make that a master again, and you go to work on the next one. You mentioned host HostDate-D. That's also another really cool piece of software, where when you have a group of machines providing a service, and a PF configuration would be like publish one IP address and one host name, and uh, use redirection from the address the world sees, probably round-robin to whatever number of machines you have behind that. Now, there's one little problem with that. Hardware, unfortunately, is unreliable. Some of it will go down, and if the machine that does the redirections has no way of telling whether a machine is up or not, sooner or later, one machine will go down and some user will hit the dead machine. That's a problem. So what Ray Flota and Pierre-Yves did was come up with a small demon called HostDateD, which integrates in your rule set via tables. So you set up your redirection to a table of machines, and the good thing with tables is that the table can be manipulated by an external program, in this case, HostDateD. So you set up a fairly simple set of rules for HostDateD to check whether the machine is up or not. If the machine is not up, it just gets removed from the pool of possible addresses, and your service looks a lot more reliable. What's happening uh, these days is, well, with 4.2, uh, HostDateD acquired the ability to handle SSL connections really well. Let's talk about the bad guys. What can PF do to help, say, mitigate denial of service attacks? There is actually a specific feature in PF that came out of somebody was hit by a denial of service attack and they said about how do we prevent this on a general principle. That was in OpenBSD 3.7, I think. Certainly, you could write into your past rules state tracking options. Stuff like you can set the number of max simultaneous connections from one host. You can put in another parameter there that says, I want to allow this many connections over the space of this many seconds, and anyone who goes over limits gets thrown into a special table. Now, what do you do with that table? Well, the easy answer is you just block them. And for good measure, you can have, I think the keyword is flush global, which just kill any connections from that host. So that's not a good use of tables. What you could do, of course, if you already have an old cube framework in place, instead of just blocking them, you could probably have this tiny little queue, which gets serviced maybe one half percent of your total bandwidth or whatever, and just let them sweat it out there. Uh, There are a lot of options, and once you start playing with it, you can see how the fun comes back into adminning. On that note, let's get to the fun one. SpamD. What can you tell us about the anti-spam daemon? Well, properly configured, it will save you a lot of electricity. SpamD has a lot of history. If I remember correctly, it was introduced in OpenBSD 3.5. 
What it did then was work from a list of known bad hosts, a blacklist, and once an SMTP connection comes in from a host on the list of bad hosts, it will answer one byte at a time until that other host gives up. That was sort of interesting. Then, about the same time as the original SpamD was written, another method was discovered, which let's call graylisting. Graylisting is the software implementation of my admin told me not to talk to strangers. Graylisting is a technique that is based on a slightly pedantic reading of the relevant RFCs. Now, the current standard for email transmission via SMTP says that basically you have to retry. You send, you get a temporary, and you have to retry within reasonable time. Now, at the time, spam was becoming a real problem. Some empirical data says, well, spammers don't retry. Most of the spam today is sent by hijacked Windows machines with fairly simplistic software on them that just throws out messages and never actually check for the return codes. If you have a real mail server, it will see, oh, there's a temporary local problem. I better come back, say, in half an hour. And that's basically what graylisting is all about. And the funny thing is that even after, God, it's been five years or so, it still works. It still kills about 95% of your spam right there and then. Does this eliminate the need for, say, Spam Assassin? Almost. No tool is perfect, at least initially, until you get your setup really tuned up, there will be some spam that gets through. The spam that does get through is spam that has somehow made it onto a real SMTP server. What SpamD does is uh, eliminate the stupid ones, the low-hanging fruit. The smarter spammers, or the spammers who detect an open relay, will probably manage sooner or later to get through SpamD, unless, of course, they made it onto some blacklist first. That's another thing about SpamD, by the way. Uh, the way it's set up, it fools some relay checkers that don't actually check for delivery. SpamD looks like an open relay, and I see that a lot in my gray lists. Like somebody in Taiwan trying to spam somebody else in Taiwan via my machines, only those 15,000 messages never get delivered. Will your new book walk an administrator through each of these features and what level of experience is required? All the features we've been talking about are described to some extent in my book. The background you need for that book is some basic TCP IP knowledge. You need to know what an IP address and IP address range is, basic knowledge of TCP IP and the services. It starts at a very basic level, like this is the rule set and how it gets evaluated. It takes off until... Well, until the fun starts at the end of the book. Is the book available on shelves now, and will it be available in other languages? The book release date is set at December 15, 2007. I had a small stack of books made up privately for OpenCon. They were auctioned off for everybody else. You can pre-order from No Starch and via Amazon and all the usual outlets now. Actually, at this conference, I was approached by people who said they were interested in translating into some other languages. I'm not promising anything, but of course, I'm hoping that it's good enough that people want to translate it. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today? The general advice is, if you want to support OpenBSD, buy OpenBSD stuff. If you want to support me, well, buy the book. Do you have any parting words for those administrators who should take a look at PF? Maybe I should turn a little bit brutal and say, if you're not running OpenBSD or if you're not running PF on some other BSD, you're seriously missing out. You're doing things a harder way than it needs to be done. Thank you for talking to BSD Talk. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email... You can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. 
That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 136.